Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and I am thrilled to have with me today Salia Farouk, who is the pharmacy specialist, the clinical pharmacist specialist in our neurocritical care ICU. She works here at Johns Hopkins, as I said, in the NCCU. She's also an assistant professor of anesthesiology and critical care medicine here at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I don't spend a lot of time working in the NCCU, but from my colleagues who do, they say she is amazing and fantastic. And I believe every every word of that because our pharmacists in general are amazing. And I know that when I have the privilege of working with them in our surgical, general surgical ICUs, uh, they're just incredible people and have such amazing training and add so much to the team. Uh, and I imagine the same is true. And that's certainly what I've been told. So I'm um, very excited to have Salia here. And what we're going to do is talk about the pharmacology of neurocritical care. And we'll cover five different things that I think will be really useful for folks. We'll cover status epilepticus, ICP crisis, reversal of ICH, neural stimulants in traumatic brain injury, and blood pressure management in stroke. So I am thrilled to welcome you, Salia, to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me, and thanks for the introduction. Absolutely. So let me ask you first, because I think it's always interesting for folks, just say a few words about yourself. How did you um, get to be the clinical pharmacist specialist in the NCCU? I imagine that um, you you obviously went to pharmacy school. Let's just say a little bit about that path in case there's any aspiring pharmacists out there who think that's what I want to do. So how did you get where you are? Sure. Um, as you mentioned, I went to pharmacy school and, you know, it wasn't really until last year of pharmacy school that I got really interested in clinical pharmacy, you know, um, positions and just this path. And I realized that I had to do a residency. So I did a residency. And to be honest, um, you know, after my first year, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do critical care or infectious diseases. Um, as you can imagine, there's a lot of infectious diseases in critical care, but I finally made up my mind. And I realized that if you do critical care, you'll definitely see infectious diseases. But if you do infectious diseases, you may not see all the cool critical care stuff that happens. So And I had great mentors, so I ended up um, doing a critical care pharmacy residency at Yale New Haven Hospital. Um, At great mentors, I was ready to do, you know, cool things, including cardiology. But then after doing a lot of cardiology research and stroke involvement, I realized that neurocritical care was what I was looking for. I was lucky that this position at Hopkins became available when I was ready for that transition and I, and I applied and I'm happy that I've been here for almost five years now. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we're so thrilled that you are. Um, let's jump in and start, as I said, with status epilepticus. So first, just give us a, a very brief definition of status epilepticus. What does that mean? Sure. Um, you know, when we talk about status epilepticus, we're talking about we're talking about uninterrupted seizure activity for five minutes or longer, and this could be either clinical or evident on EEG. Um, you know, this definition has been updated recently. In the past, we used to wait for thirty minutes before calling that a, a status epilepticus. But we know that if um, you've been seizing for more than five minutes without any interruptions and without you know coming back to baseline, you've probably already lost a lot of neurons and also treating these patients will be so difficult. And that's why the guidelines have been updated to reflect this new um, definition. Great, all right. Now, I imagine that, you know, sometimes this is very obvious because someone is having a a full kind of generalized seizure. Other times uh, it may not be quite as obvious that someone is seizing. So sometimes you would know this only because someone's not arousable and you then do an EEG and see that they're seizing. Is that right? Correct. Okay. So let's take the patient who is in status and what is going to be our first line treatment? And I should say that, you know, we're going to focus obviously on pharmacology here today and talk about, you know, pharmacologic treatment. So there may be, and in fact, I'm sure we could do an entire episode or more on just status epilepticus, talking about it in, in all the different aspects of it, but we're, we're uh, not going to be exhaustive today. We're going to focus on, on the key stuff. And if people have um, questions or want to follow up or want to see another episode, they can certainly put that in the, in the comments and we will uh, read them and potentially come back and do more. But for now, uh, let's start with this. What is the first line treatment for status? I think that one probably is the easiest, you know, question, honestly, to answer. And it's benzodiazepines. That is, I think, something that is not controversial. That's something that everybody agrees on. You know, when you're rounding, everybody's on the same page. It's evidence-based. It's um, you know, level one um, recommendation from guidelines, benzodiazepines. Um, technically, lorazepam is, uh, IV lorazepam is the first agent to choose from. But let's say there's a shortage of IV lorazepam, you could definitely go with IV uh, midazolam or IV diazepam if that's all that you have in your institution. Okay. So if you have IV access, you're going to use the IV route and you're going to give ideally Ativan, but whatever you got. Um, in terms of benzodiazepines, IV. What if you don't have IV access? Now, it's going to be unusual in the ICU that you don't have IV access, but it happens because it can come out, right? So you could imagine someone, you know, is having a generalized seizure and in the throes of that, their IVs infiltrate or come out. So what, is it better to wait, get an IV and give IV medicine or do you do a different route? No, actually, um, Time is brain, as we always say in the neurocritical care. So um, there are actually studies looking at people before even coming to the hospital hospital without any IV access. And we've been using IM midazolam. There's actually a non-inferiority study that showed that IM midazolam is non-inferior to IV lorazepam. So if you can do IM midazolam, which should be easy, and you know a lot of EMS um, colleagues uh, take advantage of that, do that. Um, PR diazepam is another route that we're using, especially in pediatric patients. So, um, whatever you can do first and whatever that is fastest, that's, that's the way to go. Great. All right. That's super helpful. Now, what's the dose? If you have IV and you're going to give, obviously it depends on the medication. Let's say you're giving Ativan IV. What do you start with? 
So um, this is a really good question. And, you know, I think there's been a lot of confusion when you go to the ED, you're asking about the dose. The dosing that we're recommending for these agents is much higher than the sedation dose or anxiolytic dose that you give. So typically for IV lorazepam, probably, which is the one that you see the most, especially in the ED or even in, in our units and our ICUs is 0.1 mg per kg um, times one, which is technically four milligrams. And then if that's not helpful, you could repeat that dose for another, you know, the second time. Um, and then I think after that, the question is, where do we go from here? Um, you know, do we think about, you know, starting other agents, uh, continuous infusions of benzodiazepines and, uh, and things like that? Okay, so 0.1 mg per kg up to a max of four, because you could imagine a 100 kilo patient, 0.1 Correct. would be 10, but you're saying we yeah, max out max at four. max is four milligrams. Okay, Correct. great. So 0.1 mg per kg of, of Ativan, and then let's just do one more. How about midazolam if you're using that? So midazolam, the IV dose, we typically talk about five to 10 milligrams. And if you're doing the IM dose, is 10 milligrams of IM. Um, we don't typically see diazepam as much, but technically up to 10 milligrams of diazepam IV also. So again, very much higher doses than you typically use for sedation or anxiolytics. Absolutely. And do are, are you comfortable giving these doses whether the patient is intubated or not? Yes, a single bolus, um, just one-time dose should not be a problem. And again, after that, I think the question is, we assess to see if these patients need to be intubated or not intubated. And obviously, based on that, our choice of options will be different. Yep. Okay. Sounds good. So that, as you said, non-controversial. First line, benzos. Let's move to second line. Let's say that either you've done the benzos and they haven't worked or, you know, you... um, I guess that would be the reason to go to a second line, right? So you've tried whatever you've tried, you've tried them. Um, what do you do then? So this is, I think, where things get a little bit, you know, gray. And, you know, this is where I think a lot of um, prior experiences come into play, um, but also patients' individual, you know, um, comorbidities, what else is happening um, to them. It wasn't really until recently that there was a study that looked at this. Um, so the ECAS trial actually looked at um, IV Keppra, levetiracetam versus IV um, valproic acid versus IV phosphonatoin. Um, just because I think everybody was searching for what is the best second line agent, you know, nobody really knew. And there's really no um, guideline recommendation for where to go after your IV lorazepam or benzodiazepines. Um, not surprisingly, they didn't actually find any difference um, as far as improving seizures um, by using any of these agents. And also the incidence of side effects was the same. So um, I think at this point, really choosing what you need or how to treat your patient after IV benzodiazepines um, has to do with uh, side effects of these medications. So, you know, if somebody is on hepatic failure, IV valproic acid will be automatically out. If somebody has a history of significant depression or, you know, behavioral issues, IV Keppra is totally out. Um, you know, drug-drug interactions come into play. We know that valproic acid and carbapenems, there is a significant drug-drug interactions. That's a contraindication. You can't use that if somebody, for example, has a history of ESBL infections and they're on meropenem or things like that. Um, so I think after the first line, the second line really becomes what else is happening with your patient. 
And then the side effects of these medications. Um, and also importantly, are they intubated or not intubated? You know, if they're not intubated, we really try to utilize agents that are not affecting your respiratory status. So for example, IV um, uh, lacosamide or Vimpat is a great option in these situations, um, except for patients with, you know, AV block or PR prolongation, that drug should not be used for that patient population. Um, we've actually seen AV block in patients who are on high-dose um, Presidex or dexmedetomidine, and they're getting loads of IV Vimpat or lacosamide. So a couple of things to kind of think about. Um, if they're intubated, obviously, I think our options are more broad. And then that's, I think, when we talk about IV anesthetics and how we utilize them. Great. So that's a great segue. Let's let's move to that. So, you know, you've given us some options. And I think the key here is that there are these second line. They have not one, there's not one that's better over another. It's a little unclear how effective they are above the benzos. But, you know, certainly if your benzos aren't working, worth a try, though you have to take the side effects into account. Okay. So you've tried those, they're not working, or maybe because you have an intubated patient that gives you some more options, you decide to think about IV anesthetics. And so um, obviously there's propofol, you mentioned Presidex. What, uh, what do we think about those and what order do we go in? Sure. Um, so I think one thing not to uh, forget about is also the mechanism of action of these agents. You know, we commonly talk about GABA, 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 um, which is probably the first receptors we're hitting. Also, um, um, you know, there's an MDA receptors, which is the excitatory receptors and antagonizing that can give you, uh, you know, kind of some um, possible options for that. So thinking about, you know, IV anesthetics, as you said, IV propofol usually um, uh, is mentioned first, especially when people are getting intubated, obviously that's used in RSI. Um, and the question is, are we going to continue propofol or are we going to potentially use continuous infusions of benzodiazepines? I can tell you that what we typically do in these cases is that we typically like to use IV propofol for a very short duration, just because, again, these patients need a lot more doses um, or higher rates than you see in sedation. So let's say if a normal person for just sedation is on 25 to 50 mics per kick per minute of propofol, um, when they get to um, receive propofol for status epilepticus, they need to be loaded for sure. We talk about one to two milligram per kilogram, and then we keep these patients on anything or anywhere from maybe 100 to 400 mics per kg per minute. And the risk of PRIS or propofol-related infusion syndrome is significant, and we've actually seen it in our unit. So, we typically limit propofol to less than 12 hours until really we have a good plan. So that's our kind of bridge. Okay, propofol is on, the patient's potentially responding. Where are we going to go from here? IV benzodiazepines are usually tried, um, you know, just because of the level of evidence, at least for first-line management. We use IV midazolam only. IV lorazepam, continuous infusions, and IV diazepam should be avoided just because of the propylene glycol toxicity. Um, that, you know, we worry about, especially with high doses, especially with prolonged durations. And then, you know, after that, um, usually the questions that come to play are, are we going to do the barbitrate coma or are we going to do the ketamine? So usually it's a dilemma, which route are we going to go? And I can tell you that there is really no good evidence and it all depends on your experience and what you feel more comfortable with. But I can tell you that if we're using barbiturates, we are committing to few days of no neuro exam because typically these agents have really long half-lives. 
you know, they accumulate into system. Um, there's a lot of drug drug interactions. They're big CYP3, 4 inducers. Um, they also cause a lot of, you know, GI motility issues. People um, have had ileus on these drugs, you know, after some time. Um, immunosuppression is something we expect. We've had people with heart failure after being on these agents for chronic durations. Um, ketamine, on the other hand, you know, is kind of nice because, you know, it's um, it provides that different mechanism of action. It gives you that NMD antagonism that you don't get with all the other agents that you have on. So a lot of, I think, our neurocritical care specialists think that maybe we should try ketamine before going to pentabarb just to give the NMDA route, you know, a shot and see what happens with that and not commit to no neuro exam for a few days. And when, you know, we go with the ketamine um, kind of option. Um, now, again, the dosing for ketamine is also very different. Um, it's been sometimes confusing. People have been starting the low dose, you know, pain um, analgesia dosing for these patients and wondering why these patients are not responding you know, the dose of 0.1 to 0.5 milligram per kilogram per hour is not going to be effective for status epilepticus. We're talking about um, maybe loading these patients with two to like five milligram per kilogram and then keeping them at one to 10 uh, milligram per kilogram per hour. Um, so the doses are significantly higher when it comes to ketamine, um, just like the other drugs that we talked about. Right, yeah. right. So those are the those are the so the point one to point five is what you are are saying, and is is the low dose for like an analgesic dose to go, you know, for someone who who is awake, for example. Correct. Um, it's the sub dissociative dosing, and then the the one to ten megs per kg per hour is a huge and dose. Dosing, yeah. right? Really, we're putting these patients' brains into coma state to reset, you know, the brain. Right. And I think this is really key that, that you're saying ketamine is useful because I think a lot of people think of ketamine as excitatory um, because of the fact that it can cause hypertension and tachycardia, because of the fact that it can cause hallucinations. So, you know, people, I, I think, have a, a misconception that ketamine would would be a bad choice in someone seizing. But you're saying it's actually a pretty reasonable second line choice. Yeah. Yeah, it actually basically what it does, it's inhibiting your NMDA pathway, which is, you know, inhibiting the excitatory pathway in the brain. Great. All right. So let's say you've, what, however you've done it, let's say you've, it wasn't enough just to give a single bolus dose of benzos. You had to put the patient on either some high dose IV propofol or ketamine or a combination. Regardless, you've got your continuous EEG going and it, it shows, okay, success, no seizures. Mm-hmm. Now, how and when do you start turning down those medications? Uh, what's, what's the titration strategy? So this is also, I think, not really well established. And I think that's a good um, question to talk about here because we get a lot of questions about this on rounds. Um, I think what a lot of um, uh, experienced uh, you know, epilepsy colleagues recommend is to wait for 24 hours of you know, this no seizure activity, meaning that for 24 hours, when we know there's no seizures, we do not touch any of these drugs just because we want to maintain that 24 hours of you know, um, either no seizure activity or burst suppression or whatever you know, your goal has been. Um, after that for that 24 hours, we start to actually titrate down these medications and we take about 24 hours for that tapering off. Um, usually the question is how fast can you titrate? Um, 
not a lot of information on that, but I think the, you know, pharmacology and pharmacokinetics can potentially help you. The more lipophilic your drug, the easier and the faster probably you can, you know, titrate down because there's some sort of auto taper that is going to happen even after you're done with your drug. So typically what we do, and, you know, um, uh, Dr. Brophy and colleagues published their experience also that they talk about 20% dose reduction for almost all these IV anesthetics every three hours. But with midazolam, just because of the extent of, you know, um, the felicity and just accumulation, we're talking about maybe even 50% dose reduction every three hours. Um, so that's typically what we're using in our unit. Great. My last question on this topic is, is there any role for inhaled anesthetics? I know it's uh, unusual and difficult to get them in the ICU, but there are some ICUs that have that option. They're used sometimes, for example, for um, status asthmaticus. Is there a role for uh, inhaled anesthetics like isoflurane in status epilepticus? So to answer that question, there is, and I think that, you know, not that we've used it commonly, um, uh, there are actually um, case reports of success with these agents. And I think um, to answer your question during COVID, when we thought that maybe we're going to use our barbiturates for sedation because of drug shortages, we talked about entertaining inhaled anesthetics for our patients in the NCCU in case we run out of these barbiturates. So there is case reports. Um, I, I don't have any, you know, firsthand experience with them, but um, I think if we have to, you know, if that's our last resort and it's something that we have to entertain, I think it, these are possible options. Great. All right. Let's move on to um, ICP or intracranial pressure crisis. So uh, first, what does that mean? What is an ICP crisis? So, um, it's interesting to talk about this because, you know, sometimes when we go to brain codes or uh, brain attack calls, um, when we say the patient's brain coding, people say, no, they're not brain, they, they're not coding. They're, they're still, you know, they have a pulse. Right. So, Normal sinus rhythm. <laughs> yes. So um, basically, you know, what happens in these patients for many different reasons, it could be because of accumulation of blood or um, CSF or um, tumor cells they basically have um, this um, uh, cerebral herniation that causes that intracranial pressure to go up. Um, and, you know, basically the ICP crisis by itself, I don't think it's such a big problem. I think one of the problem is that you're going to reduce, you're going to lose your cerebral perfusion pressure, which is your CPP. And if your brain cells are not going to have enough oxygen and perfusion, I think that's when we get into a lot of issues. Yeah. So you've got, for whatever reason, like you said, you basically have got more stuff trying to fit into the cranium than, than was meant to fit in there. And there's not a lot of flexibility of that bone. So more pressure and that can lead to herniation, um, kind of the, the ultimate bad result of the brain herniating down through the um, base of the skull. Um, in theory, you can also herniate other ways like across, um, but we certainly worry about um, herniation. And and certainly can cause, uh, can be fatal. So um, when you have a patient with elevated ICP, especially to the point where you may be looking at herniation, what do you want to do? And before we get that answer, hang on, we'll be right back. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, so we were saying for ICP crisis, when you're looking at herniation, what do you want to do? Sure. Um, there is many different interventions that we can do. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, the focus here is on pharmacological interventions. But, you know, just to quickly talk about non-pharmacological interventions, you know, um, hyperventilation is something that we typically do for a short duration uh, just for um, causing basically vasoconstriction and reducing the blood flow to the um, brain. Um, there's always a question of can this patient go to the OR for a craniectomy and kind of, you know, getting some of that pressure off by surgical interventions. But when it comes to pharmacological interventions, um, one of the first interventions that we talk about is hyperosmolar uh, therapy. So, you know, when it comes to hyperosmolar therapy, mannitol is an option and hypertonic saline is an option. Um, we can start with mannitol and, you know, pros and cons of mannitol and then hypertonic saline. Um, and before I guess um, going over each agent, um, we always get this question that which one's better? Like, can you tell us which one may be more effective? The answer to that question is that there is really no good evidence that says one is better than the other, at least as of now. Um, there are some reports that hypertonic saline may be better in TBI for reducing ICP, but we're just talking about ICP numbers. We don't know if neurological outcomes are going to be better. We don't know if mortality is going to be better. And something to keep in mind is that a lot of these patients receive a lot of interventions all at once. So it's really hard to tease out what is really making, you know, um, those outcomes better. So, In at least the neurocritical care society, what we teach and what we try to establish is that if you give the equal um, osmolar-reducive hypertonic saline or mannitol, you should technically expect the same result. Um, Now, going back to mannitol, I think one of the pros or um, advantages of mannitol is that you can give it via um, the peripheral line. So you don't need to put in a central line for mannitol administration, which could potentially help and, you know, make things faster in that emergency, especially in the ED. Uh, But you do need a filter. Sometimes, you know, you go to the ED and people ask, can I just not use the filter? This is an emergency. And I say, no, you absolutely have to have the filter because, you know, you don't want to obviously infuse crystals into somebody's veins. um, And that could obviously cause complications. Um, um, 
other than that, the other piece that we definitely want to make sure people know about is that, you know, amanitol is causing osmotic diuresis. We know that. And we know that negative fluid balance has been associated with negative mortality in TBI cases. So making sure that these patients are receiving enough volume after get, giving amanitol is, is key here. Um, also, renal failure may happen with mannitol, and we definitely, if people are in renal failure, we try not to give them mannitol. Um, before, I think, the new, um, uh, you know, cere um, cerebral edema guidelines, which was published by Neurocritical Care Society, a lot of people were using um, serumosmolality uh, as a threshold to know how much more to give. So, for example, the classic teaching was that if your serumosmolality is above 320 or 330, do not give more mannitol. That's not really the case anymore. We encourage people to look at the osmolar gap because, you know, your serum osmolality could be high just because you've been pushing sodium at the same time. Maybe somebody has been hyperglycemic at the same time. So if your gap is above 20, the recommendation is that maybe we shouldn't give more mannitol. Um, one more piece is that mannitol has a coefficient reflection of 0.9, meaning that, you know, by giving mannitol, out of every 10 molecules, um, one will potentially cross the blood-brain barrier. So by time, if you keep giving it, you could potentially cause the opposite of what you're trying to do. So instead of really you know, getting the fluids out of the brain, you may cause cerebral edema, which is a problem. And that's why we do not advise continuous infusions of mannitol, which I think was what, what we were doing back in the day, um, in the late 90s. Um, now, shifting you know, our focus to hypertonic saline, um, are we talking about 3% or 2% or either one? So hypertonic saline, I think in ICP crisis, we're talking about the 23.4%, which is the most concentrated, um, you okay. know, the 3 ml uh, volume in our institution, we call it the bullet. Yep. Um, and um, that definitely has to be given via a central line. Um, but um, I'm happy to say that we've done a lot of, IO administration of um, hypertonic saline, which is technically a central line administration, but it has saved us a lot of time and we've seen a lot of good outcomes. So if people in the ED, you know, are trying to get this hypertonic saline in, but they're concerned that there isn't a central line, obviously IO is um, the way to do it. Um, with hypertonic saline, again, I think um, in TBI, we may see better ICP reduction numbers, but um, it's difficult to say if it you know, uh, makes a difference as far as um, neurological outcomes go. Um, now, sodium numbers obviously should be monitored with hypertonic saline. If you need your sodium to be obviously bumped up and you have specific goals, this may be more helpful than mannitol. Um, and then um, there are some concerns that, you know, if your sodium stays above 160 for a prolonged duration, you could potentially harm the patient. There are higher rates of mortality with that because, you know, it can cause coagulation issues. It can cause um, heart failure. You know, there's concern about kidney issues. Uh, so that's just something to keep in mind. Great. All right. So you've got these two main um therapies that for causing a pulling of the fluid out of the brain and then an osmotic diuresis, and you've laid them out nicely. Um, what other therapies do we consider? And the one that comes to mind, which you've already talked about, would be a barbiturate coma to reduce cerebral metabolic oxygen demand. Is that kind of next line uh, in the setting of a, a still increasing or still much too high ICP? Uh, and what else do we think about? 
Yeah, um, I think, you know, usually what happens is that we try multiple doses of probably hypertonic saline and mannitol and, you know, are probably, um, uh, uh, our options become more and more limited because by time our osmolar gap is going to be above 20, by time our sodium is going to be above 160, and then the next question is what else can we do here? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there are obviously non-pharmacological, sometimes ABD placement is something we think about if there is, you know, hydrocephalus or there's, you know, mechanical things that we can do to, to our patient. Um, but um, barbiturates definitely come into play later on, um, especially if we're okay with no neuro exam for a few days. Um, one thing about, you know, um, I think a pentobarbital, which is the, the most common continuous infusion of barbiturates that we use um, in North America, is that um, we should not be checking um, pentobarbital levels when patients are on this, you know, infusion for ICP crisis. Really, we're titrating for um, ICP numbers. Now, all of this being said, there is a lot of interest, at least in the neurocritical care society, that ICP numbers may not be the best, you know, indication for um, controlling um, uh, cerebral herniation and uh, multimodality or a multimodal modality monitoring is what we're doing in our unit. We're looking at, you know, oxygenation of the tissues and the brain, which has been really exciting. So many factors that we're looking at, but I think this is commonly, since we're talking about pharmacology, it commonly comes up that what level of pentabar should we target? And the answer is nothing. We're just going to go by, you know, our ICP numbers and, you know, mm-hmm. oxygenation. And if we need to give more, we're going to give more. Um, to basically add to that discussion, though, when patients are off of pentabar and they're not doing well, and, you know, the question is about, should we do a brain death exam? At that point, I think it makes sense to send for levels because you always want to make sure that this is not the residual effects of the drug, you know, that is in the system and kind of masking um, or, you know, inhibiting that um, neuro exam. Or is it the actual brain injury that is causing um, this um, basically weak neuro exam or lack of neuro exam? Yeah, that's a great point. All right. Great. Let's move on to reversal of intracerebral hemorrhage, or I guess what we really mean is reversal of anticoagulants in someone who has an intracerebral hemorrhage. So we've got someone on an anticoagulant. Now that could obviously be an antiplatelet or it could be uh, something else. So let's start by talking about antiplatelets. So you've got someone with a confirmed intracranial bleed and you know they're on antiplatelet medications. What are you going to do? Um, so when it comes to antiplatelets, I think um, the first question that we ask is, um, do we know what agent? Because, you know, not all antiplatelets are the same. We talk about, uh, is this a reversible agent that a patient took or is it irreversible? I know most agents, um, unfortunately, are irreversible that we see in the community. So the common ones are aspirin and clopidogrel or, or Plavix. Um, the problem with that is that, you know, if somebody took uh, one of those agents, uh, these drugs will stay in your system until you really have new platelets you know, produced and released into the bloodstream. So um, I think when you think about it like that, platelet transfusion kind of makes sense. Um, and we'll talk about the evidence. I think it gets a little bit more, um, I think, not, not as maybe um, black and white as we'd like it to be. Um, but then if it's, um, reversible like Berlenta or Ticagalor, this is easy, you know, as long as three to five half-lives of that drug is passed, then your, you know, you, you, um, your platelet activity is back to normal. So 
talking about, you know, patients um, with these agents on board um, and platelet transfusion, there is one Asian study that actually looked at people with um, basal ganglia bleed as a result of taking aspirin. And what they found was that when these patients received platelet transfusion before going to the OR for operations, when they got out, they did better, not only from the ICH expansion perspective, but also from mortality and, you know, from um, ADL scores or functional status. Um, and there was no incidence of more side effects. But then um, in 2016, I know the PATCH trial came along and they found that if you received antiplatelets, including DAPT or dual antiplatelets, and if you received platelet transfusions, um, not only you didn't do better, but you had um, more um, worse outcomes or um, more side effects. And I think this is just a reminder that, you know, platelet transfusion is not benign. Um, it can, you know, cause um, infection-related issues, uh, lung-related injuries, um, sepsis, um, transfusion-related reactions, and such. Um, so based on those trials, right now the recommendation, or at least what we follow um, in our unit based on the Neurocritical Care Society guidelines, that if patients are going for neurosurgical procedure and they have received antiplatelets, it is reasonable to get platelets. If they have not been, um, they're not going to uh, procedures, probably risk versus uh, benefit does not justify giving uh, platelet transfusions. Um, going to DDAVP, you know, I think DDAVP is pretty exciting to, to talk about because I think typically this drug um, is a pretty benign, uh, you know, medication. Um, it's been shown to potentially improve uh, platelet activity in animal studies and healthy um, individuals. It's also been shown to um, improve or increase von Willebrand factor. So a couple of things that are exciting to, to you know, um, look at. Um, there are retrospective single-center single studies that are published in critical care medicine that they found if you gave DDAVP alone um, and no platelet transfusions, um, rate of ICH expansion on repeat head CT actually seemed to be better. Um, again, no neurological outcomes were assessed. There was no you know, mortality assessment. This was just really looking at head CTs 24 hours later and looking at the rate of expansion. And then the rate of hyponatremia, which is everybody's concern, especially in our unit, wasn't any different, meaning that uh, sodium levels did not drop given the mechanism of action of this drug and, you know, all of that. Um, so basically, um, again, what we typically do is that um, we talk about it, we entertain, the, you know, the, the idea. I think some people are more comfortable giving it, some people are not comfortable giving it at this point because there isn't a whole lot of studies out there. But if we do, we utilize the 0.4 mics IV times one, as opposed to, I think, the uremia dosing that is the 0.3 mics um, IV times one, just because the ICH dosing has been um, the higher dosing. Okay. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and just in case folks are wondering what you meant about the sodium, this is an analog of ADH, right? So this is going right. to cause water retention just like ADH does and therefore dilute your sodium or may, that's the idea, but you're saying there hasn't been issues with hyponatremia. Correct. I mean, I think you see some hyponatremia, but at least those retrospective studies did not find a big difference, um, um, which, you know, is I think promising, but these are limited single center retrospective yeah. studies, so it, it shouldn't really be, you know, used as guidance. Yes. Okay. So if someone comes in, let's say on warfarin with an elevated INR, that's pretty easy, right? We're going to give them FFP to reverse the coagulopathy, right? That's kind of, you know, plus minus vitamin K, but that one is pretty straightforward, right? So 
FFP we used before, but now we're using fresh, um, we're using four-factor PCC, you know, as our standard of care. Um, just because you give lower volume, you can reverse these people faster. I'm also excited to say that, you know, we're doing fixed dosing of four-factor PCC instead of waiting for INR to come back, which has honestly saved us many hours. I can't tell you how many hours we're waiting for INR to come back, but there are studies that we looked at and we changed our practice in our institution to say, if you come in for ICH and this is your body weight, we don't need to wait for your um, INR to come back. This is your fixed dose of Kcentra, which is the four-factor PCC. Um, and PCC is prothrombin complex concentrate, right? Correct. Okay. And so it's got activate. Is this an active? Kcentra is activated or not activated? Kcentra is not activated. Kcentra is for factor PCC, which is associated with factor two, seven, nine, and ten. And then on the other hand, you have FIBA, which is the activated, um, you know, for factor PCC. It has um, a lot more of activated factor seven in it compared to Kcentra. The other piece is that. Um, Fiber does not have heparin, so this is kind of nice for people with a recent history of HIT, if that's your concern. K-Centra does have um, some heparin in it, just, just something to keep in mind. Okay, so great to know, right? In, even with warfarin, we're going to give this, and fixed dosing is really interesting. And then um, does that also apply to the direct oral anticoagulants? So probably up until a few years ago, I should say now, um, that was our practice, um, but um, as you all know, um, right now there is a new drug on the market um, called Endexinit. Um, this is specifically FDA approved for um, DOAC-related bleed. Um, basically, what this drug does is that it um, binds to these agents, to your 10A inhibitors, such as you know, apixaban, rivaroxaban, adoxaban, and it kind of inactivates it and does not let the, these drugs to act in the coagulation cascade. And also it can partially um, uh, produce more thrombin. So it's been associated with thrombin generation also, which could potentially be helpful on patients that are bleeding on these agents. Um, it works fast um, and it's very expensive. Um, there is, unlike, you know, four-factor PCCs that it's just a one-time dose and you give it and you're probably okay, um, this drug is um, a loading dose and um, followed by a continuous infusion over two hours. Okay. So despite the cost, this is still now our first line for patients with, um, with ICH and uh, who are known to be on DOAX? So in, I think if you're asking about what we're doing in our institution, um, it is. Um, but um, we do, just because of, you know, um, costs and side effects associated with the drug, we do have specific criteria for approval. So um, everybody who gets indexinate must absolutely meet the following criteria. Um, you basically need to have GCS of five or above just because, you know, if your GCS is three already, it may not be the most effective intervention. Um, you need to make sure the patient has been taking the drug within the past 18 hours, um, the 10A inhibitors. And also, we want to make sure that if these are transfer patients from other institutions, they did not receive um, um, four-factor PCC, for example, K-Central or FIBA, or even factor seven within 48 hours of admission to our institution. Okay. So if they meet those, then we give it to them. Um, and this is a direct reversal as opposed to the um, uh, PCCs, which work, but are um, you know maybe uh, a little less targeted. Is that... A good summary? 
It's, I think it's, it's fair to say that, that it's, you know, um, probably for a factor PCC is pretty much a very broad spectrum kind of, you know, just providing the coagulation factors to them. Um, but as of now, really, there's no head-to-head study that has been looking at, you know, four-factor PCCs versus indexinate. What we know is that, you know, there are um, studies that are retrospective and looked at four-factor PCCs, and they saw that the rate of good or excellent hemostasis for ICH at least was around 70 to 80%, and the risk of thrombosis was around 5% or less. And that was pretty comparable to the NXO4 um, results that looked only on indexinate. Um, it was a single arm study, and they found that the risk of um, or the rate of good or excellent hemostasis was around 82%. And actually, the risk of thrombosis with this agent was about 10%, so maybe slightly yeah. higher risk of thrombosis. Um, on that note, though, this, this study is still recruiting, so we're hoping that we're going to get more patients and we can maybe make a better, you know, um, um, maybe, you know, um, final decision or conclusion from these studies. But um, I think it's hard to really put them side by side because it's hard to compare them. And we have to also obviously acknowledge that ICH by itself is a pro-inflammatory disease. People are at high risk of thrombosis, not only for ICH, but because of other reasons that they were getting anticoagulation for. A lot of these patients have PEs, DBTs. Um, So that's just something to keep in mind. Absolutely. Okay, great. Let's move on to the role of neurostimulants in traumatic brain injury. So one of the things obviously we think about is amantadine. Let's talk about that and then what other agents may play a role. Sure. So, you know, when it comes to neurostimulants, um, usually, you know, the idea is that um, if you are increasing the concentration of dopamine, norepinephrine, and acetylcholine in the brain, you're potentially improving memory, you know, arousal, wakefulness, and things like that. And I think that's the idea behind trying these agents, especially in TBI cases. Um, Amantadine probably, honestly, has the highest um, level of evidence or, you know, studies out there. It's a drug that directly or indirectly can increase your dopamine levels. And also it does have some um, inhibition of NMDA receptors. So there are studies with amantadine. There's one that actually was done in 2004 in Europe and they looked at ICU patients with GCS of eight and less, so really severe TBI cases. And they got amantadine IV, which is not available in America. And what happened was that after three days um, of admission to the hospital, when they receive amantadine IV, when they got discharged, they had better outcomes, um, not only GCS outcomes, but also mortality, which was pretty impressive. But then there was a rehab study that was published in 2012, you know, in New England, um, not in ICU patients, obviously these are rehab patients. And what they found was that if you gave PO amantadine for four weeks, people had um, faster rate of recovery. But when you stopped it, the rate of recovery was really the same between the placebo group and the amantadine group, which really um, brought up this question that, you know, is this drug really helping? Is it just time? You know, is it combination of this drug and physiotherapy? Um, we can't obviously control for a lot of other factors. So I think there are probably more questions about the use of neurostimulants than answers at this point. Um, all of that being said, do we utilize in our patients? Absolutely. I think in our younger TBI patients without renal impairment and without QTC problems, we definitely use amantadine. We just have to make sure that uh, we dose them early in the morning and no later than 2 or 3 p.m., 
I think it's always frustrating when you see these orders, you know, for nine or 10 PM and you're like, this is not the way we should do these drugs because, you know, the whole point is that they're awake during the day and they could sleep at night. So we kind of correct their, you know, um, circadian basically cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, other drugs, you know, there are reports of um, methylphenidate use um, in TBI patients, um, but modafinil has been also looked at not only in TBI, but also in stroke because a lot of patients after stroke, they've had fatigue or um, daytime sleepiness. And there are some pilot studies, but I, I don't think that we can make any really final conclusions yet. Okay, interesting stuff. Are there other injuries? Uh, I mean, you mentioned um, stroke uh, that potentially um, modafinil may help. Um, are there other things other than, than TBI and stroke uh, that we think about that we might want to use neurostimulants or are those the main ones? I think the main, main ones that we see are probably, you know, TBI and stroke, not only ischemic, uh, we've also utilized it in ICH and there's also retrospective studies of cases and centers that are using it even in ICH cases, including, you know, subarachnoid hemorrhage, epidural, so different types of ICH or, you know, hemorrhagic complications. Great. All right, let's move on to our final topic, which is blood pressure management in stroke. And there's been a lot, I think, of changing thought on this over the years. Um, So let's start with an intracerebral hemorrhage, so a hemorrhagic stroke. What do we think of in terms of the best blood pressure goals? Sure. As you said, there has been a lot of debate, and I think um, that goal has been always a topic of discussion on rounds also, even to the state. one thing that I think we all know is that um, you don't want your blood pressure to be high during especially the first six hours of ICH because that could potentially lead into expansion of that ICH. Um, I think initially uh, there was a trial that came out, um, the Interact trial, that Interact 2 trial, that um, you know they looked at ICH cases and they said, let's get the blood pressure below 180 um, for one group and one group less than 140 and see what happens. And what they found was that there was no real difference between these two groups. But this um, preordinal analysis showed that maybe if you got the blood pressure below 140, you had better MRS scores or better functional outcomes. Um, you know, ATAC 2 trial got published in 2016 just to confirm those results. Well, you know, a better kind of design, more um, uh, protocolized blood pressure management. They only allowed specific drugs and they kind of, you know, instructed people what to do. Um, but they got the opposite, actually, uh, results. They found that not only there is no difference if you reduce the blood pressure to less than 140 as opposed to less than 180, but people in the less than 140 group had more rates of AKI potentially due to hypotension and hypoperfusion. So, Based on that, in our at least in our unit, we pick the middle ground. We goal or target for less than 160 um, to kind of keep it in the middle. Um, and I think that's been working out so far. But I, I can tell you that we don't really, I don't think we have enough evidence to say one is better than the other. And so less than 160, and is there a bottom more than, or is it just MAP greater than 65? Or what's the bottom? So I think MAPRIN 65 is probably what we're shooting for. And yeah, typically, I mean, I think when we talk about ischemic stroke, we are, we're more concerned about not to get below this level. But um, with ICH, I don't think that we're very worried about, you know, how low you can get. But the MAP, obviously, as far as total perfusion for the whole system is important right. to talk about. The yeah, and that's what I've seen is, is MAP 
greater than 65 and systolic less than 160. So that seems to be the, the way, we, at least we go. Um, and I, yeah. and now you've explained that pretty well. Thank you. Um, what about ischemic stroke? So you touched on this, that we may be more worried ischemic stroke about not being too low, because obviously mm-hmm. we need to perfuse the brain. So mm-hmm. how do we think about that? Yeah, for sure. I think um, ischemic stroke is a little bit more tricky. And, you know, I think the first question that comes into play, at least for me, is that the first question automatically is that, did they give alteplase or no? Because I need to make sure that, you know, we're kind of following what we need to follow and we're, you know, not obviously causing more bleeding and things like that. If the answer is that there was alteplase, you know, administration, obviously we're going to be very strict about making sure that at our, that our systolic is less than 180, diastolic is less than 105 for the first 24 hours. Uh, if they do not get, you know, alteplase and they come to us, um, the question is that, you know, how, how high was the initial blood pressure rate? If they are below 20, uh, 220 over 110, uh, the first 24 to 48 hours, we do not really want to reduce them to anything lower. We're not in a rush. We think that the more you can perfuse that penumbra, probably you're better off. Um, if they are above that 220 over 110, we actually talk about 10 to 15% um, blood pressure reduction. And we don't get them to normal goals, obviously. The 10 to 15% is what we um, typically shoot for. Typically also, as you said, this is more controversial about um, what is your bottom, like how like you don't want to get, typically some of these patients, we also talk about not getting below 180 just because of how perfusion dependent they can be. Um, And also I think one thing that has been commonly discussed is that um, it's not maybe so much also about blood pressure goals. It's about variabilities in blood pressure. We really try hard in these patients not to let blood pressure to go up and down a lot, just because we think that that could potentially be associated with mortality. Yeah. Okay. So if, let's say, as you said, patient comes in at 250 over 140, we're going to lower it, but just by 10 to 15%. Correct. Patient comes in with an ischemic stroke, not having had uh, alteplase. And with a blood pressure of, you know, 110 over 70, do mm-hmm. we press them or what, you know, what do we do? How, where do we want to get? So and that's an interesting concept. I think what happens here usually is that they ask if the neuro exam is perfusion dependent or not. And, you know, people are in the room, stroke team is in the room trying to figure this out. Um, if there is um, evidence that this patient's neuro exam is perfusion dependent, we do actually press them. Um, I think the evidence is still pretty controversial for what you really want to target and how far you want to push this. And people, I think, in the past have pushed the very high levels. And I don't know that we really advocate for that anymore. But I think if the blood pressure um, is um, playing a role in the neuro exam, the neuro exam is perfusion dependent, we try to get them to higher levels. I don't think that we've ever gotten to more than 180 from what I've seen. Yeah. Okay. And norepinephrine, is that going to be the go-to for that? Correct. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Fantastic. Um, Salia, this has been great. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you think we should hit on before we close? I don't think so. Great. Well, thank you. Let's move to the part of our show where we make random recommendations. Is there something that you would like to share with the audience, something you have been into checking out lately during this crazy year of COVID that you would recommend people check out? I do. I I think, you know, for us, especially in healthcare and especially in the ICU setting, it's been definitely crazy. 
Um, I've been listening to this podcast um, by Gretchen Rubin called Happier. Um, this has been really, you know, it's just talking about little things in life and how you can make things more exciting, um, kind of more positive for yourself, for your family, for your loved ones. So I highly recommend it. I think it's not medical, but I think it, it's helpful and it's, it kind of puts you in a good mood before you start your day in the ICU. Awesome. Thank you so much. It seems like a great thing to check out. And, you know, I, I feel like I may have mentioned this on a prior episode, but I wasn't finished with it. So whether I did or not, I'm going to say it again. And I'm going to recommend people who like fantasy novels. I found, just stumbled upon this um, group, this uh, this um, group of books called the Riria Revelations. Riria is R-I-Y-R-I-A. And um, it's by Michael J. Sullivan. Uh, and it's a really interesting story. He kind of um, started this. He was writing uh, books for his kid, tried to get them published. No one would publish them. He self-published them and sold like 60,000 copies. And then with that, was able to convince publishing houses to publish them. And now he's this very well-regarded author. He's uh, done the first three, the first trilogy, which I mentioned, The Reary of Revelations, I've now finished. And it's great. I loved it. Uh, the first book is called Theft of Swords. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. And uh, then there's a bunch of other books, and I'm going to check those out, too. They kind of are in the same world, but at a different time. So anyway, if you're looking for some light, fun fantasy reading, check out The Reary Revelations by Michael J. Sullivan. All right. Well, uh, Sally, as I said, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. All right. That was fantastic. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. Check it out on the website, akrak.com. You can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say, share your own experiences with maybe your work in the NCCU. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast player you use and leaving a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show. If you're interested in supporting the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime on Venmo by looking up Jay Wolpaw or by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. You can join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Jay Wolpaw, and we're at ACRAC Podcast, and you can also join the Facebook group. Thanks so much to those who have been participating in the conversation and especially those who have made donations and become patrons. Big thanks, as always, to Dr. Brian Park, our tech lead, to April Liu, who is our social media manager, and to Dr. Kimia Cash-Cooley, who is helping out with some of the show notes. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Quo, and you can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For Sally Farouk and the ACRAC Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line 
prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.